Now, yeah. we said, what do you do with the golf balls? Yeah. Uh, or no, how do you get them out of your room and what do you do with them? Yeah. There was all sorts of elaborate kind of systems of getting the golf balls to go back to their yeah. siblings' room and all yeah. sorts of ideas. But Paul, yeah. what do you do? You come home, yeah. you open the front door and it's filled with golf balls. Yeah. Worst nightmare in the world, I tell you folks. There's an easy solution. It's called the spare room. <laughs> Got to think on your feet in this church, don't you? I love those questions, they said. Keep them coming, mate. Keep them coming. Fantastic. Good morning, church. You are all looking fine this morning. Is everyone warm enough? Are those heat pumps still going? Are they? Yep, it looks like they're open. Please keep them going. Put them up another five degrees would be very helpful for me. Still getting used to the cold. Um, But I love the fact that even though it's cold here or colder... Um, you don't have the wind. It's the wind that um, that cuts, that just cuts through you, believe me. And uh, I just love it here because when you get these cold days, well, we're, we're, as we're relearning, you get these cold days, um, it usually means a nice fine day in the afternoon, doesn't it? It usually does. It's fantastic. Well, it was great having Ross and Cindy uh, here. Anyone here actually been to Bangladesh? Anyone here? Put your hand up high. Nobody. Yeah, one. Just one, is it? Yep, you've been to Bangladesh. Um, India, any been to India just across the, the, the way there? Yep, yep, there's a few of us that have been to, including myself. I might talk a little bit about that um, a little later on, but it's a real privilege to um, bring the first of these two messages on what used to be called prayer and self-denial. It's called Renew now. And um, so we're going to be talking into that this morning, but I'm also... I'm also going to be talking into it specifically from a financial perspective. Everyone say great. Great. Thank you. Wonderful. Just remember that on the 17th when you bring your offering. When you walk in the door, you'll be saying to yourself, I am so pleased to be here. This is great to be able to give this offering. Yeah, Yeah? absolutely. Absolutely. Well, since I've been here, which hasn't been that long, um, over the last few weeks, I've I've had the privilege of meeting uh, with Steve Hills, who heads up the Overseas Missions team. Steve was up here before, and and the whole Overseas Missions team. And I've got to tell you, church, um, uh, this group of people are really inspiring. I've loved every meeting that I've been to. There is energy in the room. There is passion in the room. There is a genuine desire from each one of them to see our church become more involved and more engaged with mission. Specifically, I'm talking now about overseas mission. This, this morning is not talking about mission as in the local sense. We have wonderful local mission initiatives in this church, don't we? The Neighborhood Trust will just be one arm of that, and, and more about that later on in the year. But we're talking specifically about um, overseas, uh, overseas missions. And NZBMS, New Zealand Baptist Missionary Society, have been involved in overseas mission for 135 years. Did you know that? They've been heavily involved, and in they've done a wonderful job, and they're still involved. And in fact, the, um, the first person they sent... Uh, was a lady called Rosalie McGeorge. Does anyone know Rosalie? Back in 1885. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They sent her overseas. She was the very first one. Uh, presently, NZBMS are involved in South Asia, East Asia, and South 
East Asia. And currently, there are 30-plus Kiwis and local people that NZBMS support financially on an annual basis. Currently, there are 30-plus of them. So the, the, the prayer and self-denial, or the renew that it is now called, is all about raising uh, awareness, raising the profile, and raising finances so that those people can continue to be missionaries in those environments. Do you understand that? And that's our responsibility to do that. So I'm going to bring this first message. Next week, Steve uh, and the team, um, uh, Steve will be speaking. And I've got to tell you, there are some wonderful mission initiatives uh, that Steve is going to talk about um, uh, next week. I don't want to steal his thunder. Uh, he will talk about those next week. And then the following week, so next week being the 10th, the following week on the 17th, we will be taking up an offering which is used to financially support those 30-plus missionaries to keep them in the field so that they can spread that message of good news to the people at Ross and Cindy we're talking about. Is everyone on board? Yeah. You're looking forward to it? Because that offering is going to, you've got to come down the front for that one. There'll be a basket or it might be two or three. I'm not sure how they do it here. Um, but you'll come down the front and we'll take our time. And if mums and dads, if you've got your children with you, bring your children down with you. Pray before you put the offering in the basket. Include them in the process so that they understand what we're doing. Yeah? yeah. Makes sense? So this is a whole family event. Well, just to let you know that um, you can see that we've got communion, and Maddie will be leading us in communion after I preach, um, after I preach this, first, um, this first message. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And this message is entitled, can you put that title back up there again, please? What difference can I make? What difference, church, can we make? James chapter 2. And I'll come to you in a couple of minutes and we'll read, we'll read that out. You know, missions and local mission and both uh, uh, overseas mission uh, is commanded in Jesus' the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Do you remember it? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. You know, at first glance for me, when I read the Great Commission, and I've read it many, many times, when I read the Great Commission my, as a new Christian, my first response to that was, wow, the task, God, is too big. Yeah? It's How many people in the world at the moment? There is about 7 billion. The task is too big, God. There are so many people groups. This is kind of my, my response to reading the Great Commission. So many countries, so many needs, so many different legitimate mission initiatives and opportunities. What possible difference can I make? Would you agree that every legitimate overseas mission initiative is worthy of our support. Would you agree with that statement? Every legitimate one is worthy of our financial support. But the truth is, we won't be able to provide for every need. That's the reality. 
We won't be able to support every request to build every project as much as we might want to. We won't be able to do it, church. And here's another truth, and I want you to get this not in your head, but I want you to capture this in your spirit. Here's the second truth there. Neither does God expect us to. Wow. Let's put silence over the room. God does not expect St. Albans Baptist Church to respond to every legitimate mission initiative overseas. He doesn't. But he does expect the body of Christ to respond. You see, there are other churches, there are other organizations in addition to us. Our job is to pick what we are going to focus on and get behind that. That's our job. I want you to hear this this morning, this overlooked, often overlooked principle. God does not expect St. Albans Baptist Church to do everything. But he does expect us to do something. Everyone okay? So what difference can I make? Well, probably on my own, not a lot. But when we together, by faith, place into his hands what he has already put into our hands, the difference we can make is phenomenal. There is no limit to the difference that we as a body can make when we take the resources that we have and we put them into his hands and allow God to multiply it exponentially as only God can do, Nairi, then the difference we can make is phenomenal. So let's read James chapter 2, verses 14 through to 26. And we are reading this through the prism or the filter of overseas mission. Let's read it together. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without your deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, that's great. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? That's the question he's asking there and here's the response. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says... 
Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do. And listen, church, not by faith on its own. Did you get that? In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered, listen to this, righteous? Wow. For what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction, as the body without the spirit is dead, listen church, so faith without deeds or works or action is also dead. I want to share a personal testimony with you. Around mission and overseas mission, and this might be a bit of a challenge. Back in 2007, we as a church, the church that we were pastoring at the time, we were getting ready to engage in an overseas mission initiative, the first one. We'd been there six years or six and a half years. The time had come. So I had this, uh, the overseas mission um, coordinator, Sue was her name. And Sue would come to me every year from 2001 right up to 2007. She'd come into my office once a year and she would say to me, Paul, when are we going to, as a church, do something for overseas mission. And I would look at her and say, Sue, the church is not ready yet. Um, and and that, was, that was a legitimate situation. We were building the church, rebuilding the church that had been in dysfunction for many years. We were establishing the foundation. Um, and so it was enough just to do that. Year after year, she would come into my office and ask the same question. She was like a stuck record. She really was, but a wonderful girl. In 2007, she came in. She asked the same question. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, the time is now. So we got involved in... Um, an organization, some of you might know it, Freeset in uh, India. And um, started to prepare to take a team across there. And all the while, um, as we're building up to this, this, this event, this sending a team across to get involved over there and financially support them, all the while I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going. Why on earth would I want to go to India and go and see those places that Cindy and and Ross were talking about, why would I want to do that? And all the while, and Christy, my wife, Chris, you'd know this, darling, that I was very keen for everyone else to go and me not to go. <laughs> Hello? Uh, anyway, um, so we invited, uh, we invited down the then NZBMS general director um, to come down and spend a week, a few days with the team, with the church, and we had a wonderful time, and he was encouraging the team, the six of them that were going, 
um, and I was very happy for them to do that and me to do nothing. And, um, and we're all sitting, I remember we're in the cafe, the church cafe, and uh, we're having coffee and the whole team were there and, and this was Pete Mahari actually and Pete said, um, so Paul, um, when you go overseas with the team, um, what do you think is going to happen over there? What do you think is going to be? And I said, well, Pete, I'm not going. I haven't planned to go at all. And there was deathly silence. He kind of had looked at me with that, if any if you know Pete Mihari, Pete just kind of looked at me. And I thought, oh goodness me, here it goes, here we go. So he didn't say a lot, he carried on. After, after we'd chatted with the team, he took me aside, quietly aside, and he says, you know what? I think you should rethink that situation, that position, that decision you've made. He said, I think you're wrong. You do need to go. You're the senior pastor of the church. You need to go and be part of this, not just to have the experience, but to help carry the vision in your role as senior leader. Well, I did go, and it changed my life. It changed my life. Since then, I've been four times. So that's how much it changed my life and my finances. (laughs) The reason why I want to share that with you is this, simply this. That might be you sitting here this morning. God may be knocking on the door of your spirit and you're giving all the excuses under the sun why you shouldn't be involved. And God is saying, you know, Robert, I think you should be involved. You know, Seb, perhaps, just perhaps, God's calling you to do something like that as well. Steve will share a little bit about what that possibility could be next week. And again, I don't want to steal his thunder. So in view of James 2, 14 to 26 that we just read. Let's unpack it as it pertains to mission. And in the passage, James identifies three kinds of faith. Everyone say faith. There are three kinds of faith he identifies. First, there is head faith. Head faith could also be described as an intellectual kind of faith. These are the people that they look at everything from an intellectual perspective. The head is engaged, but the, the heart is kind of just flatlined or just cold. It's just shut, shut down. So it's all about what's going on in here, but nothing about what's going on in here. Just before I explain what head faith is in this context, I do need to say this. He's not talking here about faith that is required for salvation. He's not talking about that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through. So you can't come to faith in Jesus Christ. You can't come into a relationship with Jesus Christ except by faith. It's not about what you do. You can't work your way into the kingdom of God. You know, take the widow's might. Here she is. um, with She's got two little copper coins putting it into the treasury, and the Republican got the publican guy standing beside her, and he puts a million dollars in, and who does God esteem? Her. Why? Why was that? She wasn't trying to work her way into the kingdom of God. He was. He was putting his million-dollar check in and saying, look at me. Well, she gave out of her want. She gave everything that she had. That's a heart response, church. That's not a head response. So can can you see the difference? So salvation is a 
grace-by-faith deal. I'm not talking about that, and nor is James talking about that. He's talking about a different kind of faith. Where Paul the Apostle talks about the priority of faith under salvation, James, Don is talking about the proof of your faith. Do you know the difference? Can you see the difference? There is the priority of faith that is required to be saved by grace. But James takes that same principle and he says the flip side of that now is not the priority of your faith, but the proof of your faith. Everyone okay? And what James is saying here is one can claim that they are a religious person because they know about God, but knowledge alone does not equal salvation. It's more than that. And Jesus made the same point in Matthew 7.21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Ross Meyer when he was sharing this morning, he was talking about, I want to do what God has called me to do. He said, that's what he was talking about. That's the will of God for him. Aren't you glad you're not Ross? <laughs> and Cindy, one of the things when Christine and I first um, came to faith, and new Christians, uh, can I share this? Okay, good. And... Um, <laughs> And then she said, she said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. We're Christians now. The last thing I want is to be a missionary on a beach somewhere in a thatched hut. That was her worst nightmare, you know. <laughs> and then he sent us to St. Albans. So what does that tell you? <laughs> so there's God's general will for our lives. That's what James was talking about. That who does the will of my Father in heaven. And James tells us early in chapter 1 verse 27 what that is. This is God's general will for all of us. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself being polluted by the world. So you can have an in-depth knowledge of who God is. That's intellectual faith. But if your godly knowledge doesn't translate into godly action, this is James' words, not mine, your faith is dead. That's what he's saying. Bible commentator Warren Worsby, one of my favorites, says this, People with dead faith substitute words for deeds. They know the correct vocabulary for prayer and testimony and can even quote the right verses from the Bible. But their walk does not measure up to their talk. They think that their words are as good as their works and they are wrong. That's head faith, church. That's intellectual faith on its own. Then James gives a simple but everyday life illustration, verses 15 to 26. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is that? You see, church, is knowledge important? 
Is it? Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. But even better, church, if we take what we know, what we've heard, what God has said to me individually, to us as a church, if we take what we know and translate it into action, we've done a good job. We have done the will of our Father. Yeah? I think it was St. Francis of Assisi who said this, preach the gospel always, but sometimes use words. Food, shelter, clothing are basic needs of every human being, whether they are saved or or they're unsaved. Would you agree with that? And James is saying, if you want to witness God's love to a starving person, feed them first. Clothe them first. Help give them, get them into a place of shelter and protection first. You know, when I went to um, my very first trip to India, uh, we went into the red light area in Calcutta called Sonangachi. Um, has anyone actually been there apart from me? Yeah, that, yep, that gentleman, he's born, he's born in, you were born in Calcutta, weren't you? Yeah. So what's your first name? Ed, yeah, that, I have a chat to this young man over there. He was born there. So this first trip into, um, into this, this, this area, uh, the, the red light area, and you've got to understand, church, that um, we're talking about a um, one square kilometre space, or a, one K that way, that way, and that way. That's the area, right in the center of Calcutta. I think Calcutta's got about 15 million people in it or something like that. It's massive anyway. In that, in that one kilometer square, that red light area, there are seven to 10,000 prostitutes. During an evening, any evening, there will be 20,000 men that would go through that area for obvious reasons. You know why I didn't want to go to Calcutta? Because I didn't want to see that. I didn't realize that's why I didn't want to go. It became clear after I'd gone or when I went. I didn't want to see that. And God had to do a number on me Change my heart. And I'm glad, Zoe, I'm glad I've been. I'm glad I've gone. I'm glad I saw. I'm glad I experienced that. Because now, when I talk about that place and those things and mission and overseas mission, I talk with passion. I talk with conviction. Because I've been and I've seen. And you know, it's not very difficult then to put your hand in your wallet and take out the offering that God has told me to give, rather than the offering that Paul would want to give. Everybody okay? See, one of the reasons I believe for some people, going overseas to see those things is important for you, because it just changes your life. It really does. It changes your perspective. It changes your opinion what you think these people do or could do or should do. It changes everything. It actually gives you a heart. 
It changes your heart, I think, to become more like Jesus' heart. Yeah, that's been my experience anyway. And then when we went into these areas, um, it was really interesting. When I say, when I said just before I didn't want to see that, it wasn't the prostitution side of it, to be honest with you. The, the biggest challenge for me was the, um, the 12 and 14-year-old girls that were lined up on the street to be prostituted. That's what I didn't want to see. That was the, that was the biggest challenge for me. And Peter, uh, was a very wise man, he, he, said, um, he said, you know you, what, you, halfway, partway through our time here, you might want to take a day out just to go and be on your own and go and ask God the question, why is this happening? You're a God of love and compassion. How come this is happening? And he said, he said I don't have an answer for you. You've got to go and explore that yourself. You go and ask God yourself. So I took a day out um, while I was there. Every, everyone had their turn about doing this. I took a day out and just went away on my own, and I asked God the question. And, and, and my question was, God, where are you in, in, in this area? Where are, you, where are you, God, in Calcutta? And the organization that we had connected with, Freeset, that is still operating, it's called now Joya, by the way. It's got a name change. And God said to me, you know sometimes when the Holy Spirit just nails you, just, you just get this ream of word in your spirit? Yep, Brian, you, know, you just get it, there it is, it's God. And I said, God, where are you in all of this chaos? And he said, look at Freeset, that's where I am. That's where I am. And they've made a phenomenal difference in the lives of many, many women over there and children and generations um, that have come from those women. It's just been incredible. So anyway. You know, when we take up the Renew offering on Sunday the 17th, our feelings of compassion towards our missionaries serving overseas won't be enough. We will also need to put our compassion into action, church. And we, each one of us here, We'll need to do something because that's what God's going to ask us to do. We will need to do something. In fact, the Greek word translated dead in James in verse 20 carries the meaning of being barren or idle like money that's not earning any interest. Our faith, if it is genuine, will be expressed by not by um, if we give, but by what we give. And then there's the second kind of faith that James identifies. It's, it's demonic faith. Verse 19, he uses the illustration, you believe that there is one God. That's good. Even the demons believe that. You know, even a cursory reading of the New Testament, you can see on a number of occasions where Jesus dealt with demonic oppression. Um, there are many examples of that. And the most well-known one is um, Mark 5, when he went to the region of the Gadarenes. And he delivered a guy, I, I said, one of the Gospels have two, two men, and one of them have one man. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, Jesus delivered this guy of a legion of demons. Do you know how many demons, uh, a, a legion, what makes up a legion? How many people? 
Five to seven thousand. Five to seven thousand um, in a Roman legion. That's how many demons this guy had in him. That's a few, isn't it? But Jesus delivered him in an instant. I want you to catch this in your spirit. I want you to hear this. The same power that Jesus exercised there, he has given to you. Everyone smile. Same power. Exactly the same power that Jesus exercised, he has given to every believer. Has anyone here um, experienced having to use that gift to see someone released demonically? Yeah. A few. Yep. Yeah. I remember years ago, this guy who was, who was demon-possessed confronted me just outside the church on a Sunday morning, and um, it was, was really interesting, actually. And, uh, and he was doing this thing, and our people were walking into the church and trying not to notice what was going on, and he was performing like a trained seal. And um, I remember standing there thinking, God, what am I going to do? I mean, seriously, I had no clue what to do. Then the Holy Spirit said, gave me these words, you know, sometimes you just feel it. And, um, uh, and, uh, and, and so I'm standing there listening to all this stuff coming at me, and I felt the Holy Spirit say to him, uh, say to me, um, um, ask him whose authority he has. And I did. I said, stop. Whose authority are you using? And right at that point, because of the Holy Spirit in me, who was the preeminent authority, he ran out of the car park screaming and yelling and never seen him since. See, that's exactly as it happened. I learned something that day. I learned that the same authority that Jesus had when he set the demon-possessed man free, I had it and was able to use it. And I saw it working in real time. It was phenomenal. It really was. See, demons submit to the power of God's word. And they also believe that there is a place of, of punishment so do, demons are neither atheists, nor are they agnostic. They knew who Jesus was. When Jesus came into the Gadarenes, got off the boat and walked into that area there, the demon-possessed man said to Jesus, What are you to do with us, thou son of the Most High God? Clearly they knew who he was. They knew. And they knew that their time was up. See, church, I think when it comes to that side of things, the, the demonic faith, that we can be um, fearful that somehow we don't have the ability or the power to deal with that, when in actual fact we do. All you have to do is stand on the truth of who God is, that God has given you the authority, and you just use it. And Satan has no choice but to flee. So James talks about demonic faith. And then in explaining the relationship between faith and works, he concludes 
his narrative by demonstrating that there is only one kind of faith that constitutes true faith. It's not head faith. It's not intellectual faith. It's not demonic faith. The third faith that he identifies in this passage is active faith. And active faith begins first by believing. Then it proves itself by doing. See, it's one thing to believe. It's another thing to put that belief into practice, to act on it. And then he backs up his argument with two Old Testament examples of active faith. Abraham, who was a Jew, and Rahab, who was a Gentile, but later became a believer. I'll explain that in a second, but I want you to hear this. James uses both Abraham, who is part of the kingdom, if you like. He's an Israelite. He's one of, one of God's people. He's in, he's in the body of Christ, if you like. He uses Abraham as an example of someone who used active faith. But then he uses Rahab as an example. And Rahab's not even a believer. She, in, in that sense, she's, she's not a Christian at this point. Yet still, God used her. Watch what happens. See, Rahab was a Gentile. She's a non-believer. In fact, she was a prostitute. And she probably ran a guest house that catered for that clientele. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? That's what she probably did. The Israelite spies went to her house of prostitution. Not as clients but to warn her of the impending destruction of her city that was to come, Jericho. Here's the point. Rahab, as a non-believer, heard the word of God, the warning. Her mind and her emotions were engaged in that, but she also responded with her will. She did something. And what she did was she protected the spies. If you read the story, she protected them and they were saved. And as a result of that, have you get this? She's a non-Jew, in that sense a non-believer, and some Christians, the spies, come along to her and warn her of impending disaster to her city, her family, everybody. She hears what they had to say, so she engaged her mind. It's good to have knowledge. She engaged her heart. I could be in trouble, and my family could be in trouble. Those are both good things. But she didn't just sit on what she knew and what she felt. She put it into action. She did something. In her case, she uh, hid the spies, and the soldiers came to find them, couldn't find them. And they were saved. Do you know what the result of that act was, of the spies doing that for Rahab? Not only was Rahab saved, and the illustration is saved, she became a follower of Christ, I'll tell you that in a second, but her family, her husband, and her children. And if she had grandchildren, them also, because it says her whole household was saved as a result of what those spies did. That action... And here's the point that James is making. 
Rahab proved her faith by what she did. She did something. In fact, she actually later married an Israelite and became an ancestress of Jesus, if you read Matthew 1.5. Let's land this message. We're going to take up an offering that will be Um, that will see the lives of many people, hopefully, changed through first practical ministry. That's our missionaries who are out there engaged. Ross and Cindy, for example, going back to uh, Bangladesh at uh, age 67. Hello, some people out there. (laughs) 67, going back to Bangladesh for three years. practical ministry, and as a result of that, some people will receive spiritual rebirth. Some of the people that they will connect with, not all, but some will come to know Jesus. And we saw some of those young children up there on the screen sharing. They want to be doctors, they want to be engineers, they want to help their country, but they also have an understanding of who Jesus is, and we're testifying to that. And as I said earlier, we won't be able to help everyone even though the need is great. But we will be able to help some as we commit ourselves to do something on the 17th. You see, church, the Bible teaches that our responsibility is bigger than St. Albans and the surrounding suburbs the city, and this nation. It's bigger than that. It includes that, but it's bigger than that. And as Matthew, Maddie, wherever you are, just want to wander down the front to get ready for communion. I want to quote from the great theologian John Stott. This is why, in fact, it should come up there. There we go. We must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. I want to read to you, as Matt is just getting ready, I want to read to you again, James 2, 14 to 18, but this time from the message. Dear friends, do you think that you'll get anywhere in this life if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved and say, good morning, friend. Be clothed, be in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I can already hear one of you agreeing by saying, sounds good. You take care of the faith department, I'll handle the works department. Not so fast. You can no more show me your works apart from your faith than I, can, than I can show you my faith apart from my works. Faith and works, works and faith, fit together hand in glove. The offering that we will take up on the 17th just in closing, uh, is not your tithe. It's not a transfer of your tithe 
into an offering, you will look stunned. See, your tithe belongs in the storehouse. That's here. Your tithe runs the organization, helps pay for my salary, helps keep me going. And the rest of us that have committed our lives to serving in this way, pay for the lights and the heating that I keep rabbiting on about, all of those other things, that's the tithe belongs in the storehouse. The storehouse is the house of God, the house that we are in. It may well be that if you don't understand the principle of tithes and offerings that I do a message on, if the elders say, Paul, preach on it, no problem. I'm more than happy to do that. But what I, what I can tell you is that Malachi, which is Old Testament, by the way, not New Testament, Malachi talks about tithes and offerings. They're two separate gifts. The tithe belongs in the storehouse. There is no justification in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Nowhere is there justification not to tithe. But we're not talking about a tithe here. This is not a transfer of your tithe. This is an offering. This is over and above. So how do you figure it out? What do you do? Well, you just ask God. Just pray. Remember we did a, a sermon on prayer, was it last week? Well, the week before? Last week, thank you, Cal. Just ask God. Ask God, what, what, what do I give to this offering? And I know that every time that I've done that, and I've said to the Lord, what should I give to this offering? His figure is usually higher than mine by about tenfold. Usually, that's the case. Then I get to choose what I'm going to do. I can't tell you what to do. All I can encourage you with is to pray and ask God, and you give the figure that God has put into your spirit. That's what you do, and that's all you have to do. Whether it's the widow's might, that practically might only be, might only be a cup of soup for someone in a situation like that, or you might be in an economic, economic position where you can give much, much more than that, a million cups of soup. You've got to do what you believe God is asking you to do. The tithe part, that's pretty straightforward. That comes into the house. That stays in the house to run the organization. That's what we're committed to. But this church is an offering. This is over and above. Where are you, Steve Hills? Put your hand up over there. Steve-o, can you and I believe in faith that this Offering will be the biggest one we've ever done in this church. Can we believe that in faith? Well, at least, at least two of us believe that. We'll keep praying for that. Thank you, Maddie. Could you lead us in communion? Thank you.